0: So Esther chapter 5, the story so far is that uh, we're in the Persian Empire and this young Jewish girl has been taken to be queen. Uh, She's Jewish, but no one knows it. The Persian emperor has a, a, a chief minister, a vizier called Haman, and Haman has fallen out with the queen's cousin Mordecai. And because Mordecai won't bow to him, the vizier has decided that all Jews in the whole empire are going to be killed in 12 months time. And Esther, as we left the story last week, has just agreed to go before the king and beg for the lives of her people. And so that's where we pick the action up. She doesn't know whether she'll be welcomed by the king or executed by the king for daring to come into his presence. Esther 5 and verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? "'It shall be given to you, even up to half of my kingdom.'" and esther said if it please the king let the king and haman come today to a feast that i prepared for the king then the king said bring haman quickly so we may do as esther has asked so the king and esther sorry the king and haman came to the feast that esther had prepared and as they were drinking wine after the feast the king said to esther what is your wish it shall be granted to you and what is your request even up to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled Then Esther said, my wish and my request is, if I've found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyfully and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendour of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honoured him, and how he'd advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, "'Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king.' Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, <coughs> "Excuse me, uh, Let a gallows, a tree, fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the tree made. On that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, "'Whom would the king delight to honour more than me?' And Haman said to the king, "'For the man whom the king delights to honour, "'let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, "'and the horse the king has ridden, "'and on whose head a royal crown is set. "'And let the robes of the horse and the horse "'be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials.'" Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, as we hear these strange tales from an an empire long ago and far away, uh, we pray that he who wrote other words, millennia ago, your Holy Spirit would uh, write their truths, their meaning on our hearts and allow us uh, to live uh, for Christ in the days of our own exile and empire. Bless us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I saw a survey recently that said 47% of Brits believe in fate or destiny. So children, that's that's roughly half the people in the country believe there's someone or something kind of in control of all that goes on with the world. Now, most of those people don't believe in God. They're certainly not Christians. but, But many of us have this sense that there is something greater going on out there. Perhaps you're not a Christian yourself and you... You've looked at your life and you've wondered, is is there a purpose? Is there a meaning? Is there anything kind of, is there a director behind the scenes, as it were? You're living your life out on stage, but, but is there anyone up there in the darkness? Does anyone have a plan for your life? Or perhaps you're a Christian and you've wondered, is God doing anything in my life? And if so, what? Perhaps you've even thought... Why is he doing what he's doing in my life? There will certainly be paths of darkness for all of us at at times. Uh, Esther 5 and 6, I think, speak to this sense that there is someone there behind the scenes at work, mysterious as he may be, and hard as it is at times to detect quite why he's working. And so what I want to do is, is, is look through this, uh, these couple of chapters and shine the spotlight on, well, three main characters and see what we can learn from each of them. So, children, imagine a stage. Imagine a spotlight. You may have seen a spotlight shine on like the, the main singer or the main actor. That's what we're doing. And we're going to start in, in verses uh, 1 to 8 of chapter 5 with Esther. So uh, Esther 5, 1 to 8, we see this bold approach to the throne, As I mentioned earlier, to to go into the king's presence without being invited meant potential execution in the Persian court. Strange as that may be, uh, archaeologists have dug up these kind of carvings, these engravings from Persepolis, the the Persian capital. Uh, And they show the king sat on his throne holding the golden scepter or holding a scepter. And behind him, a soldier, a guard with a huge axe. And so to walk in, as Esther walked into the king's presence... The question would be, would the king extend the gold scepter and say she may approach and live, or would the axe fall? Now, the king's already got rid of one queen in chapter 1, Vashti. So there's nothing certain about Esther being welcomed. And so in verse 1, we meet her putting on, literally putting on royalty. The robes word isn't there. She puts on royalty, and she comes before the king and thankfully is welcomed. He extends the scepter and welcomes her in. He realises that she hasn't risked coming in just to sort of say hi. And so he asks her, what what, what is it that you desire? Up to half my kingdom. Now, almost certainly, if she'd said, I'll have half your kingdom, thanks, he'd have said, get on your bike. Um, It's just a a, a sort of show-off extravagance. But he is saying, Jordan, it's a bit like Aladdin and, and the genie. He is saying, what is your wish? Here's the most powerful man on the known world. Sat on the throne, all the authority is his, and he says... Go for it. One wish. Now, children, what do you expect her to say? Remember, she's been sent there by her cousin, Mordecai, to beg for the life of her people. They're all going to be executed. They're all going to be killed in the 12th month. You expect her to say, don't you? My husband, my lord, my king, please spare my people and me. Haman has come up with this horrible plot just because he's grumpy that my uncle wouldn't bow to him. My cousin wouldn't bow to him. Please save our lives. But she doesn't. Instead, she says, well, come for dinner. I've prepared a feast, a banquet for you. Come, um, you come, king, and come with Haman. And then she finishes the sentence somewhat ambiguously. Uh, Verse four, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that i prepared literally for him. ESV, if you've got our church Bible, says for the king. That's not there. Literally for him. There's just a note of ambiguity. Come to a feast I prepared for the king and Haman. You two come for the feast that I prepared for him. Just beginning to sow a little seed. Is it the king or Haman who's the center of the invitation? Well, they come to the feast. And at this first feast, the king knows, A hashwash knows, look, That's not your real request. So he says to Esther, when they get onto the wine course, they've eaten their food, they're drinking. He loves a feast as a a hash He says, come on, what is it, Esther? What is your your request really? Have a look at verse seven. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, and again, the language is kind of broken. The the clever scholars who can read Hebrew well and understand it properly say in their their books that, that, that the language there is kind of broken. It's like she sort of tails off. My wish and my request is, and kind of draws Beth and stops, and then says, "If I found favour in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king, come tomorrow to another banquet." Like she's going to answer, and then holds back. She's she's just reeling a hash rush in, <clears throat> making him curious. Now, what's going on? Uh, why not just get on with it? Okay, in in the twelfth month of the year, her people are going to be slaughtered. Why does she not say, "My husband, my lord, save my people"? It's interesting, isn't it? Why this two banquet strategy? Uh, She is being incredibly clever. Esther began the book as just this person who was kind of moved around. She was in exile against her will. She was orphaned, obviously, against her will. She was taken into Mordecai's home. She was taken by the king into his harem, taken by the king into his bedroom, taken by the king to be queen. She's totally passive. But as the plot develops, she starts getting active. She demonstrates leadership and wisdom. She knows, I think, she knows that just walking in looking pretty and fluttering her eyes isn't going to do it. The king already has access to her, if I can put it that way. And so that kind of allure is not going to be enough. She's got nothing to bargain with there. And so like kind of fishing, you ever see people kind of fishing? I can't fish at all, never done it in my life. But my impression is that when you fish, and especially the kind of fly fishing, you have to kind of tempt the fish up. She just sort of reels him in. She piques his interest and she gets him at the end of the first um, banquet to the place where he's almost agreed to grant her wish. It's almost as if by turning up to the second banquet, he sort of said, I will follow through and give you up to half my kingdom. She's also wise in the way she, she laces her speech with flattery. See that in verses seven and eight? If I've found favour in the sight of the king, it's kind of passive. Not if I've won favour. Sometimes we read in the Old Testament about people winning favour. If I've won favour, if I've won favour, it's not that. It's if you, your majesty, find favour with me, if you could be so gracious, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king come to a feast. She's buttering him up. And she's holding back the kind of information that might make him look stupid. You have let your chief minister sign a death warrant against a whole people and you don't even know who they are. You have put in charge of the kingdom a wicked, wicked man. She knows that going and clashing head to head is not going to work. We've seen in chapter one that when a queen disagrees with King Ahasuerus, she just gets rid of her. So a head-on-head battle is not going to go well. Fool as he may be, the king does not react well to strong-willed women who don't temper their strength with subtlety, to quote one commentator. Now, that's not to condone that attitude from the king. Okay, clearly, none of us are meant to sit at home with an axe saying, you may only enter my study you know, if I extend the scepter. <laughs> clearly, husbands, you are not meant to copy Ahasuerus' example. Don't get me wrong there. But Esther is where she is. She's married to this man. And she uses wisdom, therefore, in order to save her people. As I was preparing it, uh, this sermon this week, um, there's a a chapter that that just seems full of kind of um, resonances with with Esther 5 and 6. A chapter in the book of Proverbs. Keep a finger on Esther, uh, but just turn on a a few books to the book of Proverbs. Um, So you'll get Job and then Psalms and then Proverbs. Proverbs 16 We're going to come back to this chapter a few times uh, this morning. Because I think it's got all sorts of insights into what is going on, even when the narrator of Esther doesn't stop and say, and this is why so-and-so did this or the other. Proverbs Children is a book all about how to live wisely. It teaches us how to make good decisions and live wisely in God's world. We want, don't we, we want God to drop angels, down from heaven. Every time we've got a tough decision, what shall I do for a living? What degree shall I choose? Who shall I marry? We want Gabriel to come down with his trumpet. God says, marry Bob. God says, be a farmer. God says, live in hair Hills. God says, doesn't work like that. Neither are there promises of special voices or um, a prophet walking through your door or anything like that. Most of the time, throughout most of history and most of the Bible, God works through ordinary means and teaches us to make wise decisions for ourselves. And the book of Proverbs is all about that. Look at Proverbs 16 and verse 21. I think this is what Esther is doing. Proverbs 16, 21. The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Esther knows she has to persuade a Ahasuerus To change his mind. And it's going to be sweetness of speech that does it. Not conflict. I look down to verse 23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. And adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. If Esther went in there like a boxer. Just to go one on one with a hash rush she 's lost, she will lose, and so she 's wise. she reflects on the way God has taught her to live in his world. And the first night I was at university uh, in in Nottingham. Uh, my best friend happened to be there at, uh, as well. We went into town for the first time I had be nineteen we went out uh, got a taxi into town, got out of this taxi and just literally as we stood out onto the pavement, this huge fight kicked off outside a, a, a bar. And there were these two huge bouncers and this guy trying to fight his way in. And so, we, we, you know, we obviously just backed off. Uh, could have sorted it out, but decided not to get involved. Um, and what's weird to see was that these two huge guys were trying to hold the guy back. And eventually they got fed up with him. And one of them shouted indoors. And the two big guys stepped aside and out came a tiny guy. Like a really short guy. What are you doing? You've got these two enormous bears and they call out the little guy. And it turned out the little guy absolutely dealt with the guy trying to get in. Okay, he wasn't as big, he wasn't as strong, but he was able to just kind of, its like judo, kind of jiu-jitsu. He managed to sort of tuck him over his shoulder and turn his arm and twist it. And it, it was brilliant. Not by power, not by might, but he twisted and turned the guy, until he had complete control of the situation. That is what Esther is doing with his, her words. And there is, I think, something of a lesson there for us. As we live in a world that is complex and difficult to navigate, there are times when we need to really reflect on how best we can wisely further God's cause in the situation God has put us in. Let me give an example. For some Christians, some, some, some of you will have this instinct to be, to be boxers. Okay? You just like a fight. I know the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. And you better bow before the truth. Now, there's something commendable to that. Okay? We are meant to be courageous. And nothing I'm saying now is meant to make us kind of wimps and all the rest of it. But actually, it is not an ungodly thing to consider how more wisely we might speak. So it's the office um, LGBTQ week and the rainbow flags go up and lanyards, all the rest of it. You can walk in and say, this is ungodly. Stand up in the office and announce it. This is celebrating wickedness. Repent. Or you can think, how might I engage wisely and persuasively with what is going on here now that second option is not to back down and it's certainly not to endorse wickedness but it's simply to say that life in the empire when it's run by powerful uh, factions and powerful forces requires this kind of subtle reflective wisdom which is exactly what Esther I think is demonstrating So if the spotlight starts on Esther and her wise, persuasive words, reeling in the king in order that God's cause might be furthered, and we'll see next week how the outcome uh, arrives, the spotlight then sweeps to Haman. It's worth keeping your your finger in Proverbs 16, but back in in Esther on chapter uh, 5 and verses 9 through 14, he is happy as Larry. Children, he is over the moon. He's the most decorated man in the empire. He's second only to the king, and he's been invited to the special banquet with Esther. Until that is, he sees Mordecai. He goes out. Mordecai doesn't bow, doesn't get up, doesn't tremble before him. And he is furious. His anger at Mordecai is matched only by his boasting to his family. Did you notice that? He goes home, gathers his friends and tells them how wonderful he is. Amazingly, he even tells his wife how many sons he's had. You can imagine, he's like, yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Pretty much not just you there, Haman. Anyway, he is boasting about how great he is. He's got a very fragile ego, as we've seen before. There is one thing, he has everything, but there is one thing he can't have. And because he can't have it, he is furious and needs to boast in order to compensate. (coughs) Haman is the character that the spotlight is shone on most in the book of Esther, interestingly. We get most detail about him his thoughts, his speech, the wicked character. And that presumably is for a reason. It's not so we can just look at him and boo and hiss, although certainly we should do that, but also so we can pause and see how in some ways there's a bit of Haman in us. This man has everything virtually, second only to the king. But there is one thing he cannot have, which is Mordecai bowing. And therefore, he is not happy. His whole identity is found in everyone bowing before him. And if they don't, he cannot be happy. In that sense, he's reminiscent, this proud man who's grasped for even more, who's not satisfied with all the riches he's been blessed with. He's reminiscent of Adam in the garden. Children, do you remember Adam in the garden of Eden? He has everything. God has made this incredible world. There's no sin, there's no death, there's no suffering. There's beautiful trees everywhere, incredible animals, none of which are a threat to him. He has God as his heavenly father. He's been given this beautiful bride. And there's just one thing, just one fruit on one tree that he's not allowed. And he says to himself, without that, without that, I cannot be happy. Adam and Eve look at the fruit, see that it's delightful, desire it. And even though they've got all the riches of heaven, which is one thing being put out of their reach, withheld from them by God the Father, they reach out and grasp it. Haman, Adam, you and me. How often do we live functionally, Saying, Look, yes, God, you've forgiven my sins. Yes, your son has come and become man and died under the curse for me. Yes, you poured your Holy Spirit out on the church. Yes, you've opened up eternal life and I'll live forever in glory. Yes, you've forgiven me, redeemed me. But I will not be happy until you give me a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a job, a promotion. I will not be happy until my kids are flourishing. I will not be happy until I'm thinner. Until you give me that girl, even though she's not my wife. That guy, even though she's not my husband. That thrill that you've put out of my reach. You've given me that woman who is just on a screen, who is not mine. And I will take those things, even though you've forbidden them to me. Because happiness is not possible without them. There's a lot of Haman in us. The Bible just calls it idolatry. But really, idolatry is another way of saying, I worship myself. I am what is most important. If God has forbidden something and I think he's wrong to do so, I will take it. And I will be angry unless I get it. Again, just like Haman. Adultery is is putting ourselves at the centre. And unless my every wish is satisfied, I'm not happy. Rather than living for God and for others. We began our service, love God, love neighbour. I'm driven by my desires for what I want. Not happy in all the great grace he's, he's lavished on me. And secure in that, looking out for the needs of others. Driven by my desire, not his desire and the desires of others. That is what Haman is doing. Uh, His complete story, Zeresh, his wife and his friends seem to agree with him. And so they say, well, well, get rid of that one problem. Take the one thing you can't have and, and eliminate the problem. Build a, it's a 70 foot, five foot high tree, literally is the word. It's not a gallows, it's a tree. And hang him on it, probably spike him on it. That's how the Persians killed people. It's like a giant crucifixion. 75 foot, that's about half the height of the Parkinson building. Okay, it is way too big to hang someone on. It's ridiculous. Okay, hugely high. But Haman has lost it by this stage. Have you still got your finger in Proverbs 16? I look at verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There is Haman in action. I am the centre. I must fulfil my desires. I must have my idols. Pride. Putting me first. Root of idolatry. And it's going to lead to his fall. And so that brings us to chapter 6, which is a hilarious chapter. I reckon it's meant to be one of the funniest chapters in the Bible. Children run to scene 3, the final scene. And the spotlight here is on. Well, who's it on? It's been on Esther. It's been on Haman. Who's it on now in scene 3? It starts looking like, like the king's going to be the centre. He, he can't sleep. Okay, sleep evades him. And it just happens that that night, between the two banquets, been to the first one, second one's going to be tomorrow, he can't sleep. And so he says to his servants, read me something, read me something. Get the book of the Chronicles, which is basically the book about all the stuff I've done. It's like Persian Netflix. Um, read it to me. And so the servant opens it up, starts reading at random, and it just so happens it's the story of how Mordecai discovered this plot about five or six years ago now. And Ahashwash says, oh, yeah, what do we do for Mordecai? Our Persian em- em- emperors, we, we read in the, the histories, were hugely concerned with rewarding people who served them. You can see why. In fact, this king Ahasuerus, if, if it is um, Xerxes, as seems likely, he was killed in a plot later in his life. Obviously very late in his life. <laughs> he killed in a plot. It's pretty much the last thing that happened in his life. Um, so I could have got away with that, couldn't I? No one else thought of that. That was a really <laughs> dumb expression later in his life. Um, so, so that you can see why they're keen to reward people. But he hasn't. And so he jumps out of bed and, and says, look, are there any courtiers around to advise me here? And, and someone says, yeah, H- yeah, Haman's got here early. And Haman has got there early that morning to go and ask the king if he can execute Mordecai. And this is a great scene. So, so, here you come, in, come, Haman. Haman, what should I do for the man the king delights to honor? And again, the 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 Hebrew apparently is broken. Um, um, Haman says, "The man the king delights to honor," and it's kind of like he just yeah, it's got to be me. And so he he says four times the same: "The man the king delights to honor." And then he goes huge. He says, look, go get, get, get this guy, this guy that you want to want to give him some of your clothes, royal robes. Apparently, Persians believe that royal robes were almost magical. They, they almost kind of gave you power just by riding them, by wearing them. Get your horse, put a crown on it and get one of your highest officials to lead him through the city saying, this is the king. The man delights to honor. OK, this is turning up at, at, at church on Sunday morning. Um, in um in one of those kind of in king charles is black um rolls royce he's got with a little kind of crest on top and just stepping out of it and oh yeah charles lent it me um uh, and um you know you're wearing some of his kind of fur ermine um, robes oh yeah charles is, charles is he said i could have them for the weekend um well, and william william stepping out of the front you know prince william stepping out of the front uh, and and pointing at you and saying dad thinks this guy's a legend Okay, and just walks around. This guy, dad says he's an absolute legend. Look at him. That's what Haman comes up with. And the king says, brilliant, that's genius. Go and get Mordecai and do that to him. You lead the horse. You put the robes on him. You walk through the square saying, this is the man that King Ahasuerus thinks is a total legend. Can you imagine the scene, children? Imagine what Haman feels like walking through. This is the man, the king. Bit louder, bit louder. This is the king. Speak up. It is total humiliation. We're meant to laugh at him. It is genuinely a funny story. Uh, For everyone apart from Haman, in fact, even his own friends, you might have noticed at the end of the story, his wife say, you've had it. You've had it. The one you're trying to kill has been raised up. Who is the main character? Okay, as we wrap up, it's a long story, isn't it? But as we wrap up, who is the main character? Is it Esther? Is it Mordecai? Is it the king? Who's the spotlight on? The spotlight, children, I think is on someone you cannot see. Someone whose name is not in this chapter. In fact, not in any chapter in the book. Esther is the only book in the Bible, as you may know, that doesn't mention the name of God. But the whole story the salvation of God's people in Esther relies on a series of unbelievable coincidences. It just so happened at the beginning of the story that Vashti refused to come to the king and therefore was deposed. So he needed a new queen. It just so happened that Esther was chosen. It just so happened that she became queen. It just so happened that Mordecai happened to be behind the door when the plotters, Big Tan and Terabar, whatever his name was, were plotting and he could dob them in. It just so happened that between the two banquets, before Mordecai gets executed, the king couldn't sleep. It just so happened that when he flicked on the, you know, the Netflix, flicked on the Chronicles, the episode that was being played was the one about Mordecai. It just so happened they'd forgotten to reward him five or six years ago. It just so happened that Haman happened to have wandered into the courtyard that morning. Except it didn't just so happen. Proverbs 16 again. Verse 9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We make plans. We're not robots. That's certainly affirmed in the Bible. But it is the Lord who has planned, who has directed exactly what goes on in his world. Later on in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. Even the mightiest person on earth, their heart is directed by the Lord. And instantly we say, well, what about free will? And what about? And we have all these questions. And the Bible comes back and says, look, you're real people. You make real decisions. But mysteriously, at the same time, God is fully in control of those decisions, has fully planned them. And we say, how does that work? And the Bible says, bow down and worship. I can't explain it to you. I don't know how God is capable of creating a world where we make real decisions. We're not puppets on a string. And yet at the same time, those decisions are all exactly, not just what he knew would happen, like he's amazing at guessing, but what he planned would happen. The Lord establishes his steps. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Even the seemingly random things of life, the last verse of Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot, that's like a dice, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Children, you play Monopoly, you roll the dice, God has decided what will happen. Or to use the language of the New Testament, God works out everything according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11 God is working silently behind the scenes in the book of Esther. There's no talk of temple or prophets or priests or sacrifice. There are no visions or revelations. There are no miracles, no angels. Why not? Why is it the only book in the Bible that that does that? I think the answer is because that is how God normally works when his people are living in exile, away from his presence, as we are now. Most of the way God works is through what's called providence, rather than through miraculous. Very rarely, actually, if you were to span out the history of God's people, from Genesis through to Revelation, very rarely do you get people walking on water, turning water into wine. Very rarely do angels appear. It's not impossible, obviously. God can do what he wants. But very, very rarely. Most of the time, he works in a way we might call supernaturally ordinary. Ordinary. He's just as much in control now as ever, but we don't see him. He is, as it were, off stage. But just because you don't see him, don't fall into the trap of thinking he is not there and not just as powerfully at work in your life, in the life of the world, as he was when the waters of the Red Sea were being parted or the lion's mouths were being shut. Or indeed, Jesus was walking on water and raising the dead. And fundamentally, in terms of Esther, he is teaching us he will save his people. Nothing can stop that, because he has got all the power. Now, for some of you, that's confusing. Your life is hard at the moment. Or or you look back on things in your life and you think, why, if God is sovereign, why would he allow that to happen? And honestly, I do not know. One of the foolish things that Job, who suffered tremendously in the Bible, one of the foolish things his friends did, was turn up and try and explain most of the time, we're not told. I was talking to, I think it was the interns this week, about, about this a little bit. And I said, it's a bit like a tapestry. And then I found out they didn't know what a tapestry was. Um, so um, tapestry, you know, when you sew a picture, the Bayo tapestry, very specifically, they didn't know what the BayO tapestry was. Um, picture on the front, children, made of sewing, okay? And on the front, it's beautiful. On the back, it just looks like threads. At the moment, we basically see the back. We don't know what picture God is stitching. But we can trust that he has got a purpose. Now, this is not to deny that we really suffer and there is real evil in the world. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that it is a really deep down a good thing when you suffer. As if evil was good. Of course it isn't. Evil is evil. Rather, what Esther, I think, is saying, or the Lord God says through Esther, is that God weaves together even the wicked actions of wicked people, So wisely and well that ultimately it will end in your blessing. There's weeping on the way. This is not meant to make us give counsel to people who are suffering. That essentially boils down to come on, cheer up, rejoice. God means it for good. So pull your socks up, get on with it, stop whining. Not at all. The Bible is full of weeping. But we are promised that he will turn it ultimately for good. He will rescue his people. You see it in the pictures of Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai, who was under the death sentence, but then is raised up to glory. Meanwhile, his people watch on. They're still under the death sentence. The rest of the Jews are still under the death sentence, aren't they? But they've seen Mordecai was rescued, raised up to glory. And so they know God is at work behind the scenes. They can see in the evidence of one man that God has rescued and raised up, clothed in robes, that God is capable of rescuing, or so to us. We've seen in the life of Jesus, God will rescue his people. The resurrection proves that to us. And so even if we're confused on the journey home, we know he will do it because he has done it. He's raised one man up, glorified one man who was under the sentence of death, one man who suffered far more than any of us ever will do, and took him from that suffering to glory. And he will do it for you too if you trust in him. Therefore, we can, in a sense, laugh at evil, just like we laugh at Haman. It will not win. Your sin will not win. You can laugh at your sin. I don't mean trivialise it. I mean, you can say to yourself, you will not win sin. The devil will not win. Suffering will not win. Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at those who stand against him. We laugh at Haman in this chapter. Evil is ridiculous and it will not win. However powerful it might seem for now. And so as we wait, we're to essentially do an Esther, I think. Esther boldly approaches the throne under fear of death. Christ is pictured in that. Christ approached the Lord God Almighty and the axe fell on him in order that the scepter might be extended to us in order that we might always be welcome before the throne. And so as we suffer and as we walk in the darkness and as we're confused, we can say, Lord God, I do not understand what you're doing, but I know you're good, help me. We can go to him in prayer. And he always says welcome. He's always more keen to hear you than you are to speak to him. Because he has killed and raised his son, he is committed to being for you, even in the confusion of this world. And he is committed to welcoming you into his presence. Tidy answers no. But promises and evidence in the resurrection of Jesus that God is for you and he will win. Evil will lose. So stick with him and he will carry you safely home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, these are strange tales And yet they show your wise working in the world. Uh, We pray, therefore, that you would make us uh, in your mercy, uh, full of your spirit, in order that we might trust you in the darkness, that we might see your hand at work in our lives. And even when we don't understand it or can't detect it, would we know that you are there? Would we live by faith and not by sight? And we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus, the raising up of that one man from the dead that shows that one day you will do the same for his people. Give us faith, hope, and love, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.